The Historical Archives Committee of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of APTA, is bringing you this interview with Patty Sheets conducted by Britta Smith and Debbie Struxma on Patty Sheets' career and time as president of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. The views or opinions expressed are those of the individual creators and do not necessarily represent the position of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. This interview is taking place with Patty Sheets and with Debbie Struxma and Britta Smith at Combined Sections Meeting in San Diego 2023. So welcome to our, our interview. Thanks. So our first question always yeah. is, why did you become a PT? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Well, I decided I wanted to be a PT when I was nine. Now, <clears throat> I have no idea. I had no idea what a PT did. There was, I grew up in a small town. There was one PT in my town. I had never had PT. I'd never known anybody who had PT. I had no idea what PT was. But somewhere I heard the job title. I knew it was in healthcare, and I thought, that's what I want to do. And I think, honestly, what it is is that I was a kid who needed a goal. You know, and so it served me really well because I knew that in order to get there, you know, once you start studying, what's it going to take to do that? I was going to have to do well in school, you know, and that gave me a direction, you know. So all through adolescence and, and high school, I had a clear goal, and um, and I actually didn't really understand exactly what I was going to be doing until my second year of PT school, you know? So um, so I've often thought how fortunate I am that it was such a good match for, you know, because for me, it's the perfect combination of doing and thinking, you know? So I liked the, the problem-solving aspect of it and, um, and thinking through and the decision-making and all of that. I love that part. But then I also like the doing part, you know. So you think about like surgery and medicine, you know, where you've got the internists who do the thinking, you know. Now, this is a gross, obviously a gross generalization, but more of that thinking, problem-solving side and the surgeon, more the do-it, fix-it side. I think in PT, we get the best of both. So it's, I've often been so grateful that it proved to be such a good match for my personality and, and my interests, given that I decided to do it when I didn't really know what my interests were. <laughs> so. so in 2017, you became the, the ANPT president. Okay. Was that right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So at that time, what were your objectives going yeah. into that role? So, so I was on the board as vice president prior to my term as president. So I'd had a, a full term as vice president, which I had taken on because Sue Perry was the vice president before me. And at a CSM, she pulled me aside at the Milan Melter. And she, you know, it was her last year. And she said, I think you might like the vice president role because it's so related to practice. You know, that mm -hmm. the vice president worked with the specialization, the SIGs, um, the... Um, practice committee, you know, so uh, I think you might really like that. I've never even thought about running for the board, you know, but I don't have to have doors like pushed wide open in front of me. I'm like, oh, okay. You know? <laughs> so, 
That's great. I'll put my name in, you know, put mm -hmm. my name in there. And so uh, anyhow, so I had that. So I'd done one term and then just started the second term in the president's position. was And the nominating committee, I hadn't thought about running for president at all. And the nominating committee, uh, a member from the nominating committee, contacted me and said, have you thought about running for president? And I'm like, no, I'm the vice president. And they're like, well, why don't you think about it? You know, and, and so I, um, I did, and I thought, you know, I... I could do that, maybe, you know. So then, so then that was uh, how I moved into that, um, into that role. And what was so interesting, your question, Debbie, is we had the um, four-step meeting right after I was elected. You know, so mm -hmm. we, you know, we elect, <clears throat> and my turn, your term starts in July, and that meeting was in July. I said all these people coming up to me saying, "So now that you're the president, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know, and uh, what's your agenda?" And I didn't really have one. <laughs> How long did that take? <laughs> yeah. And so, and I kind of like was a little worried. I was worried anyway because I wasn't in the academic realm and I wasn't from research and our presidents have often come from both of those backgrounds you know I came from the clinic side of things and so I was anxious a little bit anyway about that but I also felt like we were at a time in as an association we had well established practices around education we were good at that and we had, you know, our our researchers and the depth that they brought. That was just escalating, you know. You know, I was, you know, able to watch that, and then so I felt like, well, maybe this was a good time for someone whose feet have always been kind of planted on the clinical side uh, to be in that role. So I decided just embrace your weaknesses, get, you know, seek resources, you know, and that. So I didn't really have a specific objective other than I wanted to be sure, and I think this is the case of always of our presence of the academy, just wanted to be sure that voices were heard, you know, and I did have a sense that, you know, we were, that was at the, we, the beginning of our really growth spurt, you know, we had, our membership had been growing prior to that, and we were just beginning where what we were doing, the breadth of our programming was really expanding, um, and I just what I wanted to be sure that what was important to me was that we were kind of trying to think through some of our decisions as a board, you know, and a lot of what the president does is really just, in my view, you set the, you know, the biggest thing that I do is I run the board meetings, you know, and so through that, though, you kind of set the pace for time for conversation and things like that. So personally, I felt like I wanted to be sure we heard voices. I wanted to, I wanted to hear from all the voices, you know. So when board new board members came on, I'm like, I'm like, I need you to talk, you know. <laughs> Even if that means I don't know what, if it means you don't know what we should do, say I don't know what we should do, you know, just so that we can uh, engage there. And I wanted to set a pace of decision making that we were comfortable with that we we just didn't get caught up in the flurry. So that I guess that's kind of what. I was thinking it was really more process. And then the board kind of set the, the pace, you know, the CPGs and then the commitment to knowledge translation. I mean, that's just, you know, has really expanded what the academy does. And then the position paper came out. And, you know, again, that came from the board to do that. And we had a lot of conversations about the right thing to do. And, you know, like now, 
I look at that and I'm like, it changed us, I think. Because really, for the first time in a formal way, as representatives of the academy, the board, like, we're in this camp, which meant we weren't in that camp. You know, like, that was, to me, that was the big thing. Like, when you take a position, it means you're going this direction, which means you're not going a different direction. And so that was a real, I think, one of a very concrete way in which the academy reflected its maturity as an association, where um, you kind of go, okay, this is a group of people who not only represent people who are caring for people with neurological conditions, which is kind of but also a group of people who are really kind of sort of standing for something and trying to ensure that they promote what everything they can to ensure that the patients get the best care that they that we know to give. So that's kind of the agenda, if you will, evolved from the board. I honestly didn't have one. <laughs> so to reflect on people who might be listening to this in the future... What were things specific in the position paper that were viewed very positively as opposed to the things that were viewed negatively or there was some concern about that? Sure. Well, you know, the general statement is that, you know, our position is is that we should deliver best evidence care, right? Right. And everybody accepts that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's like, well, yeah. But then we went on, and this is the piece that, you know, we spoke to is that these are things for which that we traditionally do that you know, the evidence does not support. And that's, you know, so that's when you start to kind of, there's the push-pull there, right? So yes, I want to deliver best evidence. And for each of us as individual practitioners, I think it's, we have in our own world, right, our personal practice evidence of the things that we believe have mattered, Right. And even, you know, Sackett talks about it's that that what the clinician brings as well as what the external evidence is. And um, and so it's being able to kind of take a step back. And that's where I think, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road is, is am I able to change some of my practice behaviors? Does that mean um, that I don't do the things that I love to do, that I believe work, even though the evidence doesn't suggest that it works. And, um, and so that's, that's where that dynamic is. Um, and, you know, we, we followed that up with courses. The board members have put together courses for teaching, um, for, you know, so that we've tried to expand those. There's a session here on de-implementation. And, you know, that's a big thing. The Evidence Elevates campaign is largely around stopping doing some of the things that are are not as successful and and that's hard you know my, my in my day job we try are trying to integrate some of the best evidence practice for older adults and it's really challenging for folks um, and, and I, I guess in that work I guess I've learned that when you kind of bring a new idea it, it kind of it seems like it pushes on some people's sense of self and what they've contributed because they know that their patients have gotten better and they have and the question is with other strategies could the patients be better faster or could they be mm-hmm. more better 
you know, purposefully mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. grammatically correct. You know, mm-hmm. like could they could they be even doing better than that? Um, you know, is there a value? And then the other thing is, is uh, what do we waste their time? You know, so that's like that whole value concept in healthcare that wasn't there when I first started practicing. So if we did something, you know, we haven't really looked as a profession, and I think this is true within this in our neuro group too. We haven't really been forced to, into really saying, okay, let's, you know, let's look at the things that might not be adding value and recognizing that they may be hurting in the long run. It's mm-hmm. like it's not hurting the patient physically, but if it's wasting their time, if we're wasting dollars, mm-hmm. you know, what are some of the ramifications of that? So. Besides the position paper, one of the things that has come up that you and the board have implemented is this idea of movement systems diagnosis. <laughs> Can you tell us where that came from and sort of the origins of that and where you think it's going to go? Sure. So, you know, the because I started my career at WashU, um, the movement system or our identity has been a big theme there. You know, Steve Rose was there. Shirley Sarman was there. And so, you know, after the Mary McMillan, Helen Hislop's Mary McMillan in 75, you know, they were all over this whole defining the identity. Dr. Rose wrote a lot about, you know, at that time they used the term pathokinesiology um, uh, or kinesiopathology, you know, so he wrote a lot about that. Uh, Dr. Sarman wrote a lot about that. And then, um, so, and, and Dr. Sarman's work, they had been working out these categories for musculoskeletal. And as it happened, I was the supervisor of all the acute care services in the clinic. The neuro was my first love, and then I also had the med surge and the cardiopulmonary. And, and so we were trying to, the it really is like the staff were like, well, we don't get to do all that fun, sophisticated stuff that the ortho folks are doing. So I, I just, and very early on in my career, Dr. Sarman had kind of planted a seed that when it came to like individuals who experienced stroke and things like that, if you look at the spectrum with which they present, that it makes sense that there should be some treatments that would be completely contraindicated for one group that were completely indicated for another group, you know, and that was a a concept that nobody thought of in that time, you know. So anyway, so I started trying to work out some of these ideas based on some of Dr. Sarman and Barbara Norton's early work. Um, I tried to start laying out some of these categories myself based on the people that I was seeing and and um, and then I and I felt like I should try to so we we tried to lay them out and we tried it a few different ways and um, and so uh, you know then I would read more and then you'd kind of refine and things like that so we had been had developed a, a system of categorizing patients and I think our the first time I presented it was at a CSM in the mid-90s, and it wasn't as refined as it is now, and that's right when the first guide to physical therapy, therapist practice was coming out, mm-hmm. and and I, somebody came up to me after that presentation. It was this big, and at those times, you know, the... Um, at CSM, they had the plenary session, you know, mm-hmm. on the first day, and so I remember this like all the speakers, like Shirley was speaking, Barb Norton was speaking, Andrew Guccione was speaking, you know, and me. 
And I'm sitting there like they're all chit-chatting and moving around. And I'm like, I'm sitting there with my slides because they were slides on my lap just sitting there, you know, like not moving. So anyhow, so after the presentation, somebody came up who was on the, the PT practice, the, you know, the guide, um, and said, well, because we had kind of proposed these categories. And they're like, where were you when we were developing the practice patterns. I said, well, I applied, you know, <laughs> so, so this is a, you know, so the, I guess my point is, is that my personal experience with this, this has been something that, you know, has been something that's been important to me for a long time. And then the interest waxes and wanes. So what's happened now relative to the time that I've been on the board is the identity statement and the, you know, associated with the vision, the mission from APTA and the identity statement around the movement system. And so that, and anytime APTA comes out with something like that, prior, the last big push was when they did the patient client management model and they put diagnosis, but we don't have any diagnoses. You know, so in neuro in particular, we focused on the process. We had kind of said, well, here are some ideas, um, but we really tended to focus on the process rather than the put them in a category aspect. Anyhow, so that's really what brought this most recent push um, was really the APTA and the identity statement around the movement system. And, um, and so we... Uh, had proposed, you know, we, we were kind of getting on board a little bit with that. And then ultimately what happened within neuro is um, four-step was coming up. And um, they and Van Sant, the, the very first plenary session was going to be on the movement system. And I can remember one of the board members saying, we need a group of people to look at this because we don't, we don't have a collective vision around this. So we, so in order to prep for four step, we really need some people. So we had, uh, that's when they approved the, the formation of the movement system task force. And, um, and so then we've, it, it takes a while for folks to kind of get their minds wrapped around this concept because we're so used to organizing care around health conditions. Mm -hmm. And, and so, um, so this group has worked, we, we, and what they've done really, really well is committed to writing papers that have talked about, you know, first, like, what, what do they think we should do as an academy around the movement system? And then trying to, we, we, our charge was to develop a process for examination related to movement analysis of tasks, and then to develop some sample um, diagnoses. And, um, and so now we're kind of at a stage we have now the movement system, particularly around collaborating with geriatrics and peds, is in our new strat plan. So we're going to try to continue that work. We haven't exactly decided what's the process, how organizationally, how we're going to do that. But um, And, you know, the other thing is, APTA's attention to it has gone back down. I don't know if you've, you know, they're not talking about it at the APTA. And so we've been trying to, and um, Dr. Sarman's great about trying to explore, so what happened, you know? And, um, and you know, I, I think some of it is the, uh, it's hard to get everybody across all areas of the profession moving in the same direction, you know. So we're trying to to move it forward. That's why we think collaborating with Peds and and Jerry, and they're they're really excited about that. Then we can, if we can all get 
and move together. Um, I think musculoskeletal is a little harder. I think that they've had there's they've had more resistance to the concept, so they're trying to figure out how to make that movement. And they're so big, right? Like they're big, such a huge part of the practice. So I think that's if we can kind of figure out how to make these concepts be work for the majority of folks in musculoskeletal, I think it'll be a real win. And it's like they're trying to do little things. Say so it has to get in the science because CPGs drives everything, right? Mm-hmm. So it has to get in the science. And so um, one of the gals I was in a meeting today talked about um, they're doing the revision of the a hip. I think it's hip, hip pain that's not OA. Um, CPG. And um, there's some new work that uh, Kara Lewis had done, no, Marcy Hayes had done, where they had categorized the patients. And so now that comes into the CPG, right? So then that helps that because that's part of the challenge is the literature isn't sorted by movement system problem. It's sorted by health condition. And so in some ways, our push toward evidence-based practice pulled back on the emphasis on the movement system because now we're out searching the literature, all good things. I hope that nobody misunderstands what I'm saying, but the literature isn't organized that way. So those two things, you know, we have to get the concepts into the literature. I was just had a a meeting right before this um, um, with a gal who's got some data on MS patients. And, um, and so we were talking about MS as a great health condition to emphasize the need for movement system problems because the clinical presentation is so variable. So she had contacted me. I'm like, uh, Sherry Bunyan, and I'm like, oh, this is so exciting. <laughs> and so we were just talking about maybe ways that, you know, can they use their data to identify at least some motor sensory categories that, you know, profiles essentially. And then if they can do that, you know, it's not a big step then to think about for all science going forward in that health condition, it's categorized by profile and look at people who respond versus people who don't respond. And is there a difference based on that movement profile? And you can imagine if they, if this was generally accepted, that these movement profiles exist, you could see like these are the kinds of interventions that we're going to try over here and different ones by movement profile. So anyhow, that's pretty exciting. So I think that there are enough of us now in neuro who think this is a pretty, are pretty passionate about it that we can kind of keep moving. And you know, neuro is a great place to do this because we can do details like nobody else. We do. I mean, we're good at details. And that's what it takes. I mean, to get some of these descriptions of these categories worked out and what does that actually look like? What are the movement observations? If you did a standardized test, what what are the item levels? You know, how's it going to look for this category versus that category? That's very detailed work. And not everybody has the same tolerance for that type of work, but we're really good at it. So I'm, I'm very optimistic that we can keep moving. Thank you for listening to this interview brought to you by the Historical Archives Committee. For more information on this committee and ANPT, visit www.neuropt.org.